Welcome to the No Lasting City podcast. I'm Scott Corion, your host. There can be no doubt that over the last several decades, our country has undergone and is undergoing what has been described as a sexual revolution. When I was serving actively in the military back in 2008, not that long ago, we were still serving under the don't ask, don't tell policy, which meant that if you were outspoken about being homosexual, you were dismissed from service. Of course, that has changed very rapidly in the last 14 years. More recently, in 2012, then President Barack Obama running for re-election ran on the position that marriage was between a man and a woman, which of course at that time, only 10 years ago, was still politically expedient. But that of course has changed very rapidly. And just three years later in 2015, the Supreme Court would grant a constitutional right for same-sex marriage. And of course, since that time, debates have moved way past that into what it means to be male and female and the rise of the transgender movement challenging the very idea of gender itself. In fact, a recent definition of gender identity asserts that gender identity is one's innermost concept of self as male, female, a blend of both, or neither. So now we're at a time when we can feel ourselves male, female, something of both, or none of the above. And these are things that are true and must be affirmed. The question I have for this podcast is simply this, how did we get here? And to answer that question, I'm going to summarize and interact with a recent book by Dr. Carl Truman called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. This is a massively important book for tracing the history of thought that has led up to our current cultural moment and very helpful to understand. Now, before we begin, just a few caveats by way of introduction. First, this is a very condensed summary of the book. And there is so much of what he says that I don't interact with at all in the podcast. So if you're interested in going deeper, I encourage you to pick up the book. Second, Truman states in the book that it's not intended to be either a lament or a polemic. And I want it to be clear at the outset that this podcast isn't a lament or a polemic either. By lament, what he means is this is not a longing for some golden age back then, whenever then was. Um, Sometimes, particularly Christians, can do that. We long for a previous time which we think was better than our own. And Truman basically says, and I agree, there is no such golden age. Uh, Even going back to the 50s or 60s, although uh, things would have been different, certainly from a sexual revolution perspective, there were still many, many other problems in the culture. So there is no golden age. And to look back longingly at some previous period of time doesn't help anyway. Our goal should be to understand our current moment so that we can live faithfully within it. By polemic, what he is getting at is that this book and the information he's presenting is not intended to be part of the culture war. It's not intended to talk about how great Christians are, for example, and how bad or evil other people are. Truman, I think, helpfully observes, and I agree, that often talking about how bad others are is usually very self-serving, making us feel better about ourselves and promoting a self-righteousness, which is actually unchristian. 
there may be a place for polemics, but this uh, is not intended to be one of them. And in that spirit, I'd like to begin just by acknowledging that the church has certainly failed to love as God would call us to those who struggle with sexual desires that are outside of our own experience. I remember reading from one of Rosaria Butterfield's books years ago. If you don't know, Rosaria Butterfield was a lesbian professor who converted to Christianity and has since then become a minister's wife and actively writes and speaks on these topics. But she shared a story of a woman in her church shortly after her conversion who struggled with same-sex attraction but was terribly afraid to tell anybody about it. But because she knew who Rosaria was, came to her, and in the privacy of conversation said these words, Rosaria, why do they, referring to Christians, why do they hate us so much? Now, if you're a Christian, that should break our heart and should lead us to pray for repentance. Uh, As Christians, we certainly need to hold on to the truth of God's word as it relates to human sexuality, but we are also called to love our neighbors and treat all people as those made in the image of God. Well, thank you for listening. With those introductory remarks, now on to the episode. In the introduction, Truman tells us the overall purpose of of the book. He's writing to try to understand how the statement, I am a woman trapped in a man's body, has come to be a coherent and meaningful statement today when 30 years ago, if you said that to somebody, it would have sounded like gibberish. They would not have known how to make sense of it. And yet today, of course, it's not only coherent, but Uh, To question it or to deny it, he says, is to reveal yourself as stupid, immoral, or having some kind of uh, phobia. So on the one hand, this book is one that aims to help us understand the sexual revolution that we've been living through the past several decades. And of course, that's important, and this work is very important in that because we can't rightly respond to it if we don't understand it. However, As the title of the book suggests, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, it's not a book that's actually directly about the sexual revolution. In fact, the central claim of the book, his core idea repeated again and again, is that we cannot understand the sexual revolution without understanding that there has been a much bigger revolution in our understanding of the self that's been going on for literally hundreds of years. In other words, we often talk about how quickly the the sexual revolution has happened over the last several decades. And certainly things have changed relatively quickly. He he uses the example in his book of uh, the Rolling Stones having to change the name of their song from let's spend the night together to let's spend some time together in order to perform it live on the Ed Sullivan show. So we've certainly come a long way uh, since then. And yet Truman's point is that although it seems like it's happened fast, it really hasn't because the sexual revolution is only one manifestation, a symptom of a far bigger change that's taken place over the last 200 plus years, our understanding of ourselves. So in other words, the sexual revolution has been in development for hundreds of years, and it's just now all coming together. 
So with that aside as an introduction, let, let's get into the, the body of Truman's argument. How, how have we gotten where we are today? And he traces the developments of the last several hundred years under three main movements. One, the self has been psychologized. Two, psychology has been sexualized. And three, sex has been politicized. Now, I'm going to explain what we mean by each of those. And uh, that, that really summarizes the bulk of the book, him tracing the history of how these things happen. So let's go through those. The first movement, in order to explain how we got to the place where the statement, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body, makes sense, is the self had to be psychologized. Now, basically, what he means by that is that over the last 200 years or so, where we go as people to find our meaning and our identity has shifted. Instead of finding our meaning and identity outside of us, we find it by looking within us or inside of us. There's been an increasing prioritization of our inner feelings and desires to determine our sense of who we are and what the purpose of our life is. Now, Truman uh, identifies Rousseau as the key figure of this era and romanticism, the, the movement that, that followed him. With Rousseau, he says, a new understanding of human selfhood emerges, one focused on the inner life of the individual, where we now say that my inner life is the most important and distinctive thing about me. And we begin to view the views of society and culture as oppressive. One of Rousseau's key ideas is summarized by a very famous quote, which Truman brings up in the book, which is this, man is born free and everywhere is in chains. Man is born free and everywhere is in chains. So the idea being the individual is most free and authentic when we're able to act out in public the desires and inner feelings that characterize our, our inner life. But we can't do that because culture imposes on us conformity to social norms that keep us from being fully authentic. So already you can hear in this language, you can see how this trajectory leads us to the present moment. So when, when Bruce Jenner, then Bruce Jenner, uh, came out as Caitlyn, uh, in one of his initial interviews, he talks about how he was living a lie right? He was living a lie, right? I, I wasn't being true to my authentic self, my inner feelings and desires. And society made me do that because it wasn't acceptable for me to be true to myself. I, so I had to live this lie. So I, I was born free, but I've been put in chains and now I'm liberating myself is kind of the idea. And all of this started with Rousseau is, is Truman's point. With Rousseau, a radical change occurred in how we think about ourselves. Instead of getting our sense of self from outward directed activities like civic engagement, our job, religion, economic activities, we now get it by looking within. So that's the first movement. Our, our identity had to be psychologized. Uh, but secondly, to get to where we're at today, something else had to happen. Our psychology had to be sexualized. So this is a way of saying that uh, with Rousseau, we began to find our identity in our internal feelings and desires. But with Freud, who is the key figure that, that Truman interacts with here, our identity becomes primarily found in our sexual feelings and sexual desires. 
See, Freud made the argument that humans are, from infancy onward, at their core, sexual beings. And it is our sexual desires that are ultimately decisive for who we are. So here's a quote, which I will read in full, and uh, kind of gives a, a snapshot into Freud's thinking. Here's a, this is a quote from Freud. Man's discovery that sexual love afforded him the strongest experiences of satisfaction and in fact provided him with the prototype of all happiness must have suggested to him that he should continue to seek the satisfaction of happiness in his life along the path of sexual relations and that he should make genital eroticism the central point of his life, end quote. So for Freud, then, if happiness is the goal of all people, then the quest for happiness is focused on fulfilling our sexual desires. That is central to what it means to be a self. That is the purpose of life and uh, the content of the good life. And of course, you can hear how these ideas are very much present in our day. Who does our society say the happiest, most fulfilled person is? It's the person who's able to have sex all the time. It also helps explain why the idea of celibacy is considered such an abnormal or weird choice of life. Uh, it's it, why, why the person who's not having sex with someone is someone to be pitied. Why movies like The 40-Year-Old Virgin exist, uh, because the idea is almost laughable. It's, it, it's a comedy in a way. So the bottom line is before Freud, sex was an activity for procreation or for recreation, after Freud, sex is definitive of who we are as individuals, as society, and as people. Now, again, to share another Rosaria Butterfield story, I remember her talking about when she when she first started having dinner with the pastor and his wife, who would be instrumental in her later conversion to Christianity, uh, but long before she converted— they had invited over for dinner, and she had weekly dinners, I believe, at their house for a lengthy period of time. And she recounts how they told her when she first started coming over, we want you to know we love you and we we care for you, but we do not approve of your lifestyle, referring to the fact that she was in a lesbian relationship. And at that time, Rosaria said, you know, I could understand and appreciate that distinction. I, I you know, obviously didn't agree with them, but I accepted it. But even she then goes on to say that's becoming increasingly implausible today, right? It, now, when you say to somebody, I do not approve of your lifestyle, particularly referring to sexual lifestyle, what, what is being heard is I do not approve of you. I reject you. And this is from Freud. Uh, Freud tied our personhood to our sexual identity. And this, I think, is one of the difficulties of speaking to this in our present moment. And I, I think as Christians, it's helpful to understand that when we say we don't approve of X sexuality, whatever it is, it's being heard by people who struggle with that. We don't approve of you, right? We reject you. Now, hopefully that's not what we mean but that's what's being heard. And I also want to say, if you're listening to this and you do struggle with same-sex attraction, um, you're being told that those desires define you and that people that won't affirm that don't affirm and don't love you. That's not true, but that is what's out there right now. This is why it's, again, very hard to speak to this, and we have to try to find ways to break down 
uh, that identification, which is becoming harder to do. So that's the second movement, sex, uh, our identity had to become sexualized. And then the third movement is that sex had to become politicized in order to get to where we're at today. And here Truman points to the thinking of Karl Marx and the rise of critical theory to explain how this happened. And the basic idea is this, and I'm summarizing a lot here, but under Marx and later critical theory, the world is divided up between those who have power and those who do not, the oppressed and the oppressors. And Marx and critical theory thinkers took Freud's idea of sexual repression and filtered it through the category of oppression, of oppressors and oppressed. And so the idea became that any form of sexual codes are a form of oppressing people, which does make sense in some way if our identity is tied up with our sexual desires and actions, which is what Freud said, then any attempt to limit sexual behavior is now seen as an oppressive move by those in power designed to make the individual inauthentic. Sexual codes are tools of an oppressive state. Therefore, for people to be truly free and liberated, sexual codes have got to go. Sexual freedom is now tied up with political freedom. And that brings us to where we are now. The, the stage is set for the sexual revolution that we've been living through the past several decades. But as we mentioned earlier, the reasons why the revolution's advancing so quickly is because it really is just the outworking of these ideas which have been developing for hundreds and hundreds of years. Okay, in the final section of the book, Truman gives several examples that show how this new understanding of selfhood has triumphed in our day. He's got a chapter on the rise of the pornography industry, which his goal is not just to broaden out what, what it means to be modest, but to explode the concept of modesty altogether as an oppressive tool. Uh, he has some interesting analysis of Supreme Court decisions over the last few decades that clearly buy into the logic of this modern inward self. And so he quotes, you may have heard this, there's a famous line in the decision of Planned Parenthood v. Casey, where the majority opinion writes this, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and the mystery of human life, end quote. Now that, as Truman points out, is is really would have been unheard of a couple hundred years ago. It's, it's the fulfillment of, of Rousseau's thinking. You know, we get to define our concept of our own existence. Uh, he has some interesting analysis on how this change of selfhood has led to what we're seeing on college campuses over the last 10 years, specifically all of the protests over uh, uh, people coming to speak with different ideas. And he it would make sense. If we have a new understanding of selfhood, right, we have a new understanding of what constitutes assault on the self. In a psychologized self, right, when, when, when who I am is tied up with my inner feelings and desires, assault on a person becomes not simply a matter that involves damage to my body or property. It becomes psychological, something that damages my inner sense of well-being. So in that context, freedom of speech becomes not so much part of a solution, but as part of the problem. Freedom of speech rather gives legal protection to verbal assaults on the person. And so we get to the place which we're hearing more of that speech is violence. 
He also has a chapter where he talks about the triumph of the T in LGBTQ, right? The, the triumph of transgenderism. Because with transgenderism, many of the fruits are, are present of this several hundred year revolution. The reality of the body is not as real as the convictions of my mind and what I feel to be true. Our psychology triumphs over our biology. Now, tr uh, concluding thoughts for the church. In his last section, uh, Truman offers some conclusions. So the first call that Truman has for us is to be reflective and understand that we're all touched by this deeper revolution of the selfhood. And, and he uses the example of job satisfaction. He says, consider the question, are you satisfied with your job? And he says, older generations of Americans would have answered that if they even knew what you were talking about, which they may not have, because what do you mean? Am I satisfied with my job? But, but, but if they would have understood it, they would have answered it in terms of, does my work give me enough money to feed my family, make a living, those kinds of things. But for us, that's changed, right? We don't, we, we think about the pleasure that our jobs give us, that, that inward sense of fulfillment we feel. So for older generations, we looked outward, but for us, we looked inward. And this is just one example of how we were all affected by this. And while this is not all bad, we do have to be reflective and aware that we don't adopt this thinking uncritically in our lives or in our churches. And one of the examples he gives is, how do we decide doctrine? How do we decide what is right and wrong? right? Do we hold fast to the Bible and the historic creeds and confessions that are, that are based on Scripture, or do we go with our gut, our emotions, our feelings? How do we feel about it? Because in our culture today, he says, images and feelings have primacy, and the church must not engage this. We, we cannot decide what is right and wrong based on how we feel about things. Rather, we must see uh, what does the Scripture say. And it's also true that in some cases, churches have adopted a psychologized message, right? We, we are, our hope in Christ is less and less about his objective work on the cross, dying for our sins, rising again from the empty tomb on the third day, and more and more about how we feel, right? right? And I, I should ask us, you know, is our hope that we are redeemed and rescued by Christ based on our feelings of that or based on what he's done? whether we feel it or not, right? I mean, some of the older hymns and songs, uh, there has been a shift. Some of the reasons why we sing older hymns at, at Sojourn is that they, they tend to be much more objective, praising God for who he is and what he's done in history, while many of the newer songs are all psychologized. They're all about my inner feelings and desires and have really not much to say at all about who God is or what he's done. Now, not that that's all bad. I don't want to suggest that, but, but uh, we do need to be careful about that. Our hope in Christ is the empty tomb, and that tomb is empty whether I feel like it was empty or not. Whether I'm feeling right peace with God or not, I do have peace with God objectively because the tomb was empty, right? This is uh, the danger that Truman's warning us against. Okay. Uh, he also says that the church must be a community. And he says the task of the church in cultivating a different understanding of the self takes a community. We, we, we are all so affected by this that we need an alternative community if we're going to resist the pull. And 
he does talk helpfully, and I totally agree with him about the opportunity that we have to be in a community, a community in, at a time when a lot of people are desperately looking for a community to be a part of. Human beings still need a place to belong, and he says the church can and should be that place. And he even says this is where the church can learn from the LGBTQ community for whatever moral disapproval we have. He says it is a real community where real people look after each other in terms of meeting very real needs. And to that, I say he's absolutely right. And uh, I've read Rosaria Butterfield say this, the same sort of thing, that the church can learn a lot uh, from the LGBTQ community and what it means to care for one another, what it means to, to be a place where uh, we, we don't have, it's okay to not be okay, these kinds of things. And then he says, uh, finally, in the church, we need to recover both natural law and a high view of the human body. We need to understand why male and female is good and important and not underappreciate the importance of the physical. And here he commends the work of Pope John Paul II and Christopher West and Nancy Piercy, her book, Love Thy Body. Well, okay, that's that's a lot. And I realize that the content of this podcast, it's um, it's tough to get our minds around, but I recorded it because I do think uh, he's done a, a great service to the church here in the research and, and trying to help us understand our current moment. And as I said at the beginning, we can't effectively engage unless we understand. So I hope this was helpful. And again, uh, if, if you want to go deeper, you can pick up a copy of The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self and read it for yourself. I'll finish with this. He concludes by saying, or really by suggesting rather, that our current moment as Christians in our culture is, is very similar to the second century church, where Christians in the second century were under suspicion. They held views that were very counter to the culture, but... As the church existed as a close-knit, doctrinally-bounded community that sought to live out their faith consistently and be good citizens of the earthly city, uh, they not only survived, but they thrived. And God blessed the church and grew it. Um, and so whatever discouragement we might have about the way things are, uh, again, that's uh, we, we play the hand we, we are dealt. We seek to live faithfully to God in the moment that he's called us. And just as God has worked throughout history in very difficult cultural moments, so God can work through us and in us in our day for his glory and the advancing of his kingdom. Thanks for listening to another episode of No Lasting City. Goodbye.